So we just started back in a, a new series, which is actually an old series that we are going back to, uh, called Shepherd Warrior King. It is a series on the life of David. And so we are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. Last week was our first week picking back up in this series that we had started last year, uh, took a break from, now we're going back into. Uh, so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 21 today. Um, we're going to be looking at um, the same section of scripture that we looked at last week, uh, but in just a slightly different, but in a slightly different angle. Because when we were all studying this passage, I thought that there was a couple of really big ideas that we needed to pull out of it. Uh, too much to do in just one week, so that's why this is kind of a part one and part two from last week. But if you weren't here last week, you're not going to be lost. It's okay. Um, so we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 21. Uh, I'm going to read for us, starting in verse one, just so that we all have the context. And I'm going to read verse 1 through 9. So, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible or you're having a hard time finding it, we'll have the words on the screens next to me so nobody will be left behind. And if we're all ready, then we'll go ahead and jump in. All right, well, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, it says... In verse 1, David went to the priest Ahimelech at Nob. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David, so he said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? David answered the priest Ahimelech, The king gave me a mission, but he told me, Don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I have ordered you to do. I have stationed young men at a certain place. Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest told him, there is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread. But the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from us, as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So, of course, their bodies are consecrated today. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. In verse 7, it says, One of Saul's servants, detained before the Lord, was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or sword on hand? I didn't even bring my sword or my weapons, since the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it for yourself, then take it, for there isn't another one here. There's none like it, David said. Give it to me. So, here in 1 Samuel 21, we are at this stage in David's life where, if you're familiar with the life of David, he was a shepherd boy who was caught up into battle with the Philistines whenever they were facing the champion warrior, the giant Goliath from the Philistine army. David goes and he slays the giant. He becomes a warrior in Saul's army. He rises up through the ranks to become the most famous of uh, Saul's generals, a uh, top member in, in Saul's cabinet, you can say. Uh, but more than that, he, his, his famous celebrity within Israel, his uh, adoration from the people, uh, surpassed even that of Saul the king. 
So through these years of, of David rising up in, in honor before the people and in, in favor before the Lord, Saul is actually declining because uh, Saul is, is no longer obedient to the Lord. He is breaking his covenant with the Lord. And so, uh, so God takes his hand away from Saul and his kingdom, and he puts it onto David. And so along with this God moving his hand from Saul to David and David's kingdom, and David being his rightful chosen king, uh, you you see along with that uh, the blessing that comes with it. Like I said before, you see the adoration of the people. And so Saul, being the tyrant that he was, was threatened. He was incredibly paranoid and threatened by uh, David's popularity among the people, by his success in battle and life and so on. And so, being paranoid and insecure, he starts making these different uh, attempts to try to reduce the, the, the fame, the status, and then even to take the life of David. He tries a couple of different times, and people told David, you know what, just let him simmer down. He'll be okay. Don't worry about it. You know how he is. Until finally, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it comes to a breaking point where finally uh, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, whom David was very close to, uh, recognize that this, uh, this break between Saul and David uh, is, is final, right? There is no mending this. Saul absolutely intends to take David's life. And so what David has to do, he has no choice but to escape, uh, go on the run as a fugitive in the wilderness. And that's what we see happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is the beginning of the wilderness stage of David's life where he is, he is running for his life. He's running as a fugitive, going from town to town, city to city, slowly um, uh, gathering together for himself uh, some, some men to bring with him in case he goes into battle with Saul, hiding in caves and different places that will take him in to give him refuge and so on. And so this is the very beginning of it, where we see it. In the beginning of 21, where he goes to Nob to find where the tabernacle was located at the time and talks to this priest named Ahimelech. Because being on the run and a fugitive as he was, he was running with nothing but the clothes on his back. He was in the wilderness with nothing but the clothes on his back. So he goes to Ahimelech and he says, hey, I need, I need food and I need weapons, anything that you might have on hand, Right? He had absolutely nothing. It was a desperate situation that he was in. But even in his desperate situation, and though he did not deserve the, uh, the grace of God, because you can see here, he's using some deceit. It doesn't look as though as he's following God's will as much as he is just running for his life. Despite his uh, undeservingness, God still provides for him. And that's what we saw last week, is that in, even in David's desperation, God still provided for him. He had no bread on hand, and what did God do? He filled his hands with bread from his own presence. That's what it meant when it was talking about how uh, the only bread that they had in the tabernacle was, was the bread of the presence. In other words, David was given heavenly bread, right, directly from God's presence to sustain himself, even as he was in this desperate situation on the run. And that's what we're going to continue to see today, is how uh, in, even in David's desperation, God provided for him. But in addition to that, what I really want us to emphasize and highlight today is how we ought to live in a time of desperation, right? So looking towards and understanding that we are, we are sustained by God through his provision, even when we are going through suffering or we are in a desperate situation, but on top of that, the responsibility that we have to live in a certain way, no matter what we were going through. So we're going to look at a couple of things. 
First, we're going to look at the world's suffering. Then we're going to look at God's calling. And then finally, the Christian's opportunity. So the world's suffering, God's calling, and then the Christian's opportunity. So now that we have the context of what's happening here in this passage, let's look at this thing, this first point, the world's suffering. So there's something that you heard a whole lot last year, right? Uh, last year with the start of the COVID pandemic, uh, with the, the, uh, the craziness that we saw in, uh, in going through a uh, highly political season, right, with the, the, the change of presidents, with the various cultural, social upheavals that we saw, uh, international conflicts and everything else. It, it was a wild year, right? And so what you hear really often and what you saw uh, people say so, so often throughout the year, uh, and, and as we turn towards 2021, was, man, 2020 was the worst year ever. Or, whew, I'm glad that's over, right? And, and we, we went into 2021 with a lot of optimism and saying, all right, that is finally behind us, right? And as we're discovering now, COVID is not behind us, right? That's finally all behind us. Oh, goodness, that was the worst. It was horrible. But here's the thing. It wasn't the worst year ever. 2020 was not the worst year ever, okay? No, I'm not minimizing anything that happened. I'm not minimizing the suffering that people experienced, that you experienced. Um, I'm, I'm not minimizing COVID and the sickness that it brought to people, the, the long-term effects they had even after they recovered, the deaths. Uh, I'm not minimizing the economic loss that people face from the shutdowns and from uh, being laid off or whatever else. I'm not minimizing the, the danger of any of the international conflicts we saw. I'm not minimizing any of that. But here's what I am saying. Fully grasping and accepting the, the seriousness of all of that, it wasn't the worst year ever. The only reason that we thought that 2020 was the worst year ever is because we were living through a brief little intermission of comfort. We had gotten really, really comfortable right before that. We had, we had a few good years, right, where there, weren't any, uh, any, where there wasn't anything too major. And so I think that we might have started to slip into and, 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 and uh, deceive ourselves into thinking that we had really turned a corner in human history, one that was post-global conflicts, post uh, uh, pandemics, post whatever else. And so it took us by surprise to find out, oh, we're actually not beyond all these things. It was not the worst year ever. If you study human history, become a student of world history, and here's something that you will very quickly discover, that it is the normal, it has been the normal state of affairs throughout all of human history and every single country and culture that there has ever been, that the normal state of affairs was pandemics, plagues, right? Wars, atrocities, malevolence, and so on. That has been the normal state of affairs in our world throughout all of human history. It's in fact the abnormal state whenever we have a, a brief period of time where there aren't any of those things. I say all that just to get this point across, that the typical state of the world is one of suffering. The typical state of the world that we live in is one of suffering. Now, why is that? Here's why, and this is our first main point. We live in a broken world due to sin. Why is it that the typical state of the world is one of of pain and suffering? And why is it that we live in this broken existence? It is because of sin. It is not because God created a world which was fundamentally flawed. It is not because God created a world where, where he intended or desired, right, brokenness, 
tragedies, malevolence, suffering. It is the corruption of sin brought into God's good creation, which has brought these things about. So we live in a broken world due to sin. And we see sinful brokenness manifest itself in a couple of ways. The first way is that the first way that we can see sinful brokenness corrupting the world around us is through what I call tragedy. Tragedy is those moments or, or, or types of pains and sufferings that we go through in our world today, which are not necessarily due to any human intention. Okay, so these are things like like here in the in the South on the Gulf Coast, uh, it's an it's an annual tradition to go through hurricanes, right? Now, the hurricanes that we experience, that we go through, whether it's Katrina, Laura, right, any of the other devastations that we've seen for, to our neighbors or even to ourselves here in Acadiana, right, none of these hurricanes are due to any human intention, right? We cannot point to one person who said it is because of him <laughs> that this hurricane came or, or her or them or whoever else, right? No, no one had any control over it. It just happened, okay? Same thing with, with many, many diseases, Right. Whenever we point to the various tragedies that people face, whenever they they go through a, a disease such as you know cancer, Alzheimer's, whatever else, whenever people experience mental illnesses, right, and they suffer that internal pain and and an excruciating existence of going through a, a mental illness, that's not due to any human intention, right? That is just a manifestation of the brokenness of sin in our world. And so we can point to all different kinds of pains in life. They're not due to any one person's intention, right? But something that just says to us, our world is broken. You see, it's broken in that way because sin, whenever sin through in the fall in Genesis chapter uh, 3, whenever sin entered into the world, it broke it, it, it corrupted the fabric of God's good creation. God did not create a world where, we, uh, where there should have been all of these tragedies, but sin brought that brokenness in, okay? So that's the first kind of way that we see sin manifest itself in our world is through tragedy. But the second one is through malevolence. What I mean by this is that uh, in contrast to tragedy being those pains that we experience that are not necessarily... Uh, due to any human intention, malevolence is what we would typically call evil, right? This is, as, uh, as, as the, one of my all-time favorite philosophers, Christian apologists, Francis Schaeffer, said this is those things that we point to and we say is man's inhumanity to man, right? These are the wars. The, this is the oppression. This is the, um, this is the backbiting, right? This is the betrayals. This is the, the hurts that are intentionally inflicted one upon another. These are the hurts that are also sometimes not necessarily intentionally inflicted, but due to a person's sinful choices, right? Or due to a person's sinful patterns and behaviors, uh, these, this brokenness and pain is then brought about. This is malevolence. This is evil. What does this have to do with our passage? Well, we can look at David's situation here, what he is going through, being on the run in the wilderness, right? Literally having to go on a journey through the realm of death, what David is experiencing here. And is it due to, is it just a tragedy? No. What he's experiencing here, the suffering that he is going through, is due to human malevolence. It is due to the, the homicidal intent of the tyrant Saul. 
That is what David is experiencing here. He is in a state of suffering because of malevolence. But here's what we need to note. That though he was going through this state of suffering, and that though, and this is relevant to us as we live in a world which is broken due to sin, though he was going through this state of suffering, God did not abandon him. Though he was going through this desperate state, and as we saw last week, though he was going through this desperate state, and he was acting in a, with desperate behavior, which is not justified, right? No matter, no matter what the circumstance, desperate behavior is not justified, though he was in that state. God does not abandon David. David goes to Ahimelech at the tabernacle with empty hands. There, there's this repetition of the language of hands here. He has empty hands, and he asked Ahimelech was on their hand and to give it into his hand. Right? He comes with nothing, like I said, but the clothes on his back. And God, through the situation, through Ahimelech, provides him with heavenly bread and, and with a sword, as we're going to see in a moment. Even in this state and in this situation, God does not abandon him. And it is so important for us as we do a somber ref- uh, reflection on the state of our world's brokenness to highlight and understand this. So we have a realistic view of the world, but we also have an equal grasp on that truth that God does not abandon us. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how desperate it feels, no matter how small you feel in comparison to the powers that are against you, no matter how hurt and broken you are, no matter how much you feel you have been torn apart, God does not abandon us. And here's what that means. This is beautiful. It means that in this broken world, since God does not abandon us, we are more than conquerors. That means this. It means that no matter what you go through, you are not ultimately a victim. It means that no matter what you go through, even if you're going through that suffering fully due to your own, uh, <laughs> your own choices, right? Your own sinful or moronic choices, right? Even if you go through that state, because even then God does not abandon you. You are not ultimately a victim or you're not ultimately just getting what is due to you. Right? Even then, we are more than conquerors. Even when if we endure pandemics, even when if we endure storms, even when, no matter what we go through, because God does not abandon us in the midst of our storms and suffering and pains or whatever malevolence might be aimed against us, we are more than conquerors. This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. He wrote, um, he said, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul lists almost every type of suffering or every type of source that, of suffering and malevolence that we can go through in this life here in that passage. And he is determined of this truth that no matter where suffering comes from, how intense it is, it cannot separate us from the love of God. 
And so as long as we go through our suffering, but we go through it still in the love of God from which we cannot be separated, it's still God, God being with us, then through those things, we are more than conquerors. Now, I don't say that as just a, like a psychological trick. So if you're going through suffering, you can just say to yourself, well, I'm more than a conqueror, and it starts to feel better. Right? Okay? I, 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 I think that's irresponsible. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? It's not a psychological trick. It is an objective truth, which will then start to change your perception of what you're going through. Right? If before you were going through suffering and you were telling yourself that you were a victim, or you were telling yourself that, uh, that you were helpless, that there was nothing you could do, right? Or that you were abandoned alone, Right? If these are the things that you are telling yourself, well, then you know what that's going to happen? It's going to, it's going to, it's going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? There, there are going to be self-fulfilling things you're telling yourself, which is going to, which is going to keep you in that state, right? and w- which is going to keep you miserable, and which is going to prevent you from seeing and experiencing God's love for you, even through what you're going through. But if that perception is then first changed, you realize, no, I'm not those things that I'm telling myself. And no, I'm not those things that my culture or my family or, or, or whoever else has told me that I am. In Christ, who never abandons me, even in the situation that I'm going through now, which hurts, I am more than a conqueror. If that perception can change, then guess what else might change? It might change the way that you act. It might change the way that you start to see the situation you're in and blind spots that you once had before because you were living with the, in, in, in those lies are removed and you start to see opportunities to improve your situation or to improve the situation of your community, to engage with the suffering of the world. David's suffering here in this passage is because of Saul's sin, but though he is on the run with, with empty hands, he is not a victim. Because God is providing everything that he needs, and he will, as David uh, continues to go, go along in God's love, he will work out all things for his good, something that we see Paul affirm in Romans chapter 8. And so, as I said before, if we can grasp this truth that we see in David's story, that we see in Romans chapter 8, then it can start to make a difference in your life today. It can start to make a difference even while you're walking through the wilderness. And so, let me ask this question. So, if we are more than conquerors, what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for us right now? Because, like I said, Paul did not write this to us to just be a psychological trick. And he did not write this to us so that we would say, okay, well, so we would overly spiritualize it, where we start to say, okay, so we're suffering right now, but, you know, one day long in the future, on the other side of eternity, where we die and go to heaven, then, then things are going to be great then. We're going to be more than conquerors then. And I don't think that Paul was talking in purely future or eschatological terms. I think he was speaking in a present reality. What he was saying here has ramifications for the now, too. Yes, I'm looking forward to that day. Whenever we get to experience the, the, the Christ our King's final defeat over sin, right? I'm looking forward to that. But I think that what Paul has to write, has to say to us here, what we have to learn from this story, has ramifications for today. In other words, 
If we are more than conquerors, do we have a responsibility to live in a certain manner in a world of tragedy and malevolence? Does God expect something from us now, or does he expect for us to just passively ride out the storm until he swoops in to deliver? Here's what I believe is, our, is God's calling to us. This is the second big point. God calls us to face the world's suffering. And, here's, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But God calls us to face the world's suffering. Remember something that happened earlier in David's life. The, the big event, like one, of the, one of the big stories that, that almost everybody knows from the Bible. The event that catapulted him into fame and launched him onto the, the, the path that God had for him in his life. Which, is, which was his confrontation with the giant Goliath. Right? Goliath was a malevolent threat to the nation of Israel. Goliath was the realm of death coming on to Israel, right? Goliath was a, was a picture of the, the broken state of the world, right? And, and he was a, a picture of malevolence and, and of the, the sin that we face coming against the nation of Israel. So there we have this, like I said, a realistic view of, of sin and brokenness, right? So Goliath was a threat to Israel, and instead of the king Saul, and instead of the armies stepping up to face this threat, they were hiding, right? They were giving into fear. They were just trying to passively ride out the situation, hoping that maybe Goliath would give up, or hopefully, I don't know, a, a meteor would fall out of the sky and strike him down, right? Whatever else it might be. But instead, or in contrast, we see David. And whenever David sees this threat that is coming against the nation of Israel, whenever David sees this threat that is coming uh, against his people, he doesn't just see a, a threat. He sees because he believes in the power of God and because he believes in God's covenant to his people, Israel, that he will, that he will provide them with everything they need to overcome any threat. Whenever he looks at Goliath, while everyone else sees, a, 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 while everyone sees malevolence, while everyone else sees uh, suffering to be avoided, he sees an opportunity. Whenever David sees Goliath early on, what he sees is an invitation from God to change the state of affairs to bring about uh, a better situation for God's glory and for the benefit of his people. Do you see that? What was the big difference? Because David understood God's calling. That yes, that the world is in a state of suffering, that Goliath was a malevolent threat to them, but that God calls his people because we are, we are secure in his love to engage with those situations. And that whenever we do, there might be an opportunity to change it for the better. Here's this truth. In every instance of suffering, there's an opportunity to change it if we accept God's invitation. In every instance of suffering that we see in our world, there is an opportunity to change it. How? It's an important question to ask how, if that is a truth, because here's the thing. If the tragedy and malevolence that we see in our world is ultimately due to human sin, to sin breaking the fabric of creation, if sin is the ultimate reason why we see 
these, itself manifesting itself in, in tragedy, malevolence, pain, and suffering in our world, then can we actually do something about that? Can we as people, just as human beings, moreover as people who often contribute to the sinfulness of the world, who are sinners ourselves, who are fallen ourselves, who are broken ourselves, can we deal with that ultimate issue? Can we atone for the sin that is wreaking havoc in our world? Can we defeat the sin that is wreaking havoc in our world while we are often sinners sinning ourselves? Well, the answer to that is no. Absolutely not. It would make no sense to believe something like that. We cannot atone for the sin of the world. We cannot defeat the sin that in our own power. We, being sinners ourselves, we cannot defeat the sin that we see wreaking havoc, havoc around us. So here's the thing. We need someone else to defeat sin. And that's what we see in the gospel. What if someone else could defeat sin? What we see in the gospel is Jesus, who was the greater David, slaying what was the ultimate Goliath, what was the ultimate threat against his people, which is human sin. Jesus, the ultimate David, who, who stepped up, who, who was obedient to God's calling and invitation on his life to look at and face the suffering state of our world and the ultimate problem and source that it came from, which was sin, and then slay it, take it down like a, war, like a knight slaying a dragon. Jesus defeats sin. But he would defeat sin, not, uh, not like David or not like the knight who, who slays the dragon with his sword. Jesus would defeat sin, but he would defeat it in his own death. You see, because for him to defeat sin, he has one of two choices, right? Either he is going to defeat sin by defeating us, if we are sinners as well, right? But if he loves us, and he wants to rescue us from his sin, how will he both rescue us but then deal and defeat with the problem of sin? Well, the other option is for him to pay for our sin with his own life. And whenever Jesus steps up as our champion, where he steps up as our greater David, and he saves us from the consequences of our own sin, from the condemnation from our own sin, by, by dying the death that we deserve. But then him being a conqueror over death, rising up from the grave, and then inviting us into his new resurrection life, he then defeats the power of sin over our lives. So that there is this. Yes, we cannot defeat sin on our own. We cannot atone for, for the world's sin, much less our own, unless we were to die for it. But in the love of Christ and walking in his resurrection power, filled with his spirit, right, empowered by him, he then invites us to step into opportunities which he has opened up for us and then in his power change those situations for the better. Which is why in every instance of suffering that we see in our world, if you are a Christian in the love of Christ, right, walking in resurrection power, there's an opportunity for you. There's an invitation from God to you to step in and make a difference. Christian, it is not your role to just passively sit by and try to ride out the storm. Christian, it is not our role 
to just sit in our church pews or chairs, right? And, and, and pray very pious prayers, right? And try to live sweet, nice lives, and be, but be no practical good to the world around us and wait for God to just swoop in and miraculously change every single problem and issue that we see with no investment of our own. Friends, what God is calling you to, if you are a Christian, is not to be that kind of passive, unhelpful type of person. Very nice, but ultimately unhelpful, right? But instead, he is inviting you to participate in his restoration work in the world, right? These are the kind of things that you do whenever, I mean, first example that comes to my mind, these are the kinds of things that you can do whenever you become a peacemaker in the world around you. Right? We talked about this in our recent series on the Beatitudes, and we talked about blessed are the peacemakers. Right? Whenever you see a state of suffering in someone's life nearby you, whether that be in your own life, whether that be in, in, in someone, a, a loved one who is near you, and you don't just sit back and see it from the outside and say, whoo, I'm happy that's not happening to me, but you instead decide to engage as a peacemaker, what are we doing? We are seeing an instance of suffering and then stepping in accepting God's invitation so that through his power, we might see a difference. When we see brokenness in the world around us and we, and we go to engage with it, right? I had the pleasure of getting to talk to Pastor Tim just a little while ago and his team who are here from Wisconsin, who, who him and his church, his team, spend enormous amounts of resources and time to, uh, to help restore areas of brokenness that they see around our country and around our world. They're here down in South Louisiana to help people who, in, in Lake Charles who have experienced devastation from hurricanes, fires, and so on, help people in Acadiana who, who are in states of brokenness. You see, these are the kind of things that I'm talking about whenever I'm saying, whenever we see a state of brokenness in the world, not just sitting back and saying, well, let's pray for the Lord to step in, but then be the answer to that prayer. So that in and through Christ's victory, we would see this opportunity and calling and accept it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we sang this truth this morning. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have such a large, large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, what it's talking about there, whenever it says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, the Greek word that is used when he talks about running this race with endurance is the Greek word agon. And what that is talking about is the type of struggle that you might see between two wrestlers, like in, in the Olympics, whenever you have two wrestlers engaging in a fight, struggling with one another to, uh, to gain dominance. This is the kind of struggle, this is the kind of running with endurance, the exertion and the effort that he is talking about here when he is calling us to run the race. You see, that is very different than the passive lives that so many Christians are living today. You see, that is so different than just trying to avoid sin in our life versus actively obeying Christ, fixing our eyes on him, then running the race. 
seeing those invitations, taking up those opportunities, right, to, to obey him. Do you hear God's invitation? Let's look at this. This is where I want us to end and, and kind of tie all these things together. What happens when you accept God's invitation? So do you hear his invitation this morning? Do you see places in your life? Do you see doors of opportunity? Do you see states of brokenness that you, that you know or you might be thinking, I, want, I think God is calling me to step in, right? God is calling me to do something. What happens when you accept these opportunities? Let's, I want to start answering that question this way. Why do dragons always hoard gold? Right? In, in stories uh, all throughout history, in, in the great mythic stories where there's, where there's a dragon and there are warriors or, or, or a warrior who goes to slay that dragon, or even in, the, in, the, in, in Tolkien's story, The Hobbit, right? Why do dragons always hoard gold? They're always, they're always hoarding gold, or maybe sometimes it's not that they're sitting on gold, but they, they have, uh, in the story of St. George and the dragon, right? The dragon had kidnapped a princess right, or, or a maiden from the town, right? But in every circumstance of dragon stories, what we find is that the dragon is hoarding gold or princess, but the dragon is hoarding something of great value. And then a warrior steps up to go and to slay that menace, that menace, that threat, that, that threat of suffering that there is to the community. And then once that threat is slayed because the warrior has stepped up to engage, well, then the gold or the maiden is there as a great reward. Why is that always a part of our dragon stories? Here's why. Because I think it communicates a deep truth, which is that those things or that which we often fear the most is concealing what we most need. David stepped up to slay a dragon. Whenever we read the story of David and Goliath, and, and we read it closely, and if we, especially we read it with help from some uh, scholars and commentators, they tell us that, that Goliath is presented in the story in serpent-like language. He's presented uh, in language very similar to the serpent that we see in uh, Genesis chapter 3. And his, his uh, armor itself is described as, as like scales, right? But this serpent is no small one. He is a giant. He is a, this serpent is a dragon. David is God's warrior, seeing the invitation, who steps up to slay the dragon. He literally receives a maiden as his reward. Do you remember? As one of his rewards, Saul gives David his daughter in marriage. But there's even more than that. God had another reward in store for David, which was this. Because David had accepted God's invitation to step up to see not just a threat and be afraid, but to see an opportunity and trust in God's calling. And because he willingly stepped up to face that threat, to change the situation in participation with God's power, here, years later, whenever he was on the run, empty-handed, with nothing but the clothes on his back, God gave him bread, the bread that he needed to sustain him, and he filled his hand with a sword. And not just any sword, but what does David say? He says, do you have anything on hand that I can have? And what does the priest say? He says, well, I just have one thing, the sword of Goliath. The sword of the, the, that the dragon was hoarding, right? The sword of the giant that you slay. It is here. It has been kept. And now 
It is yours. Because David accepted that invitation and he stepped up, there was this great reward that God had in store for him in his moment of greatest need. God's invitation to us is often discovered at the intersection of the world's suffering and our responsibility. If there is a reward in store for those who confront the chaos and suffering of life, then friends, as we close today, let me encourage you to step up to your calling. It might look different for all of us in many different ways. And some of us will have greater capacities and be able to do different things than others. But in whatever capacity... And in in whatever situation God has called you, and whatever you can do, let me encourage you to step up to your calling. One of my all-time favorite quotes is a classic. I know many people love it. I actually have it in a poster in my office. It's uh, a quote, uh, people call it Man in the Arena, from Teddy Roosevelt, right? Teddy Roosevelt, I'm not going to give you the whole quote, but Teddy Roosevelt in this quote essentially said this. He said, it's not the critic in the, uh, in, this, in the stadium. It's not the critic in the seat who counts, but the man in the arena, right, who has blood and sweat and tears upon him, right? It is not for those who sit back and criticize, but for those who take action. He says it is for them that, uh, that there, there is reward or that, that like, there is meaning in that. And I was reflecting on that as I was thinking about this and, and this challenge to us to step up to God's calling because Here's the thing. Whenever I look at our culture today, even sadly, whenever I look at the church today, whenever I look at my generation of the church today, we've got a lot of critics in the cheap seats. We've got a lot of critics in the cheap seats who are sitting back in the stadium, who are complaining about the state of the world, who are complaining about whatever it might be, the mess of politics, who are complaining about whatever, uh, the hypocrisy of church leaders, who are complaining and, 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 and tweeting, right? <laughs> Snapchatting or TikToking, whatever else it is. They're rage against the systems, but are no good for anything beyond complaining. Friends, my, my hope and my vision for us, where we read these stories from Scripture and we, we hear these truths, is that empowered by God, we might become the kind of people who can not just complain, but that we might step out of the cheap seats, down into the, into the arena, engage with the suffering of the world, and make a difference. Do something about it. Become people who obey God, not who just sit back. Listen to what Peter said in Second Peter uh, chapter 1. In Second Peter chapter 1, he said this. He said, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, and goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Listen to what he says. It happens whenever we do this. He says, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his 
sins. It is my hope that we would not be useless and unfruitful, like Peter wrote about. Maybe, I know that I, I can't change I can't change the church in America. I can't change even the church in Lafayette. But what about our church? Right? What if us, just in the small community that we have here, with the limited resources that we have here, we make a resolution that because God has given us his, he has provided us with everything we need, because he, he fills us with his divine power, because through his word he equips us with everything that we need for life, and that as we grow in his word, we might then step out in active obedience and be people who actually are useful and fruitful. So let me challenge you once again. Become that helpful person. Become that person who sees where everyone else just sees something to complain about. You see an opportunity. You see an invitation to engage in. When everyone else sees something to just be afraid of, you see an opportunity to step up in faith. And that through your actions, whatever they might be, right, engaging in the world, you might then start to slowly, and even just a little bit, move the needle slightly away from suffering towards flourishing, slightly away from brokenness towards restoration in the power of the gospel. Maybe then you will become someone who can be a blessing to your family and community. Maybe then you'll be that person who can make a difference. Maybe then you'll become that person who changes the system. At the very least, if you don't have the power to change the system or do those things, start to live out in yourself and your life the kind of values that you want to see lived out in the rest of the world. And let's see what happens whenever God takes that step of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we see in the story of David how whenever your people step up to the invitation that you give us to engage in the brokenness of the world, to face the powers of malevolence that are against us and that are against you, that are against your gospel and your glory. Father, whenever we accept these invitations that you provide us with your power, that your love makes us more than conquerors through all these things, Lord, even as, even as we might suffer and as there is cost in stepping up and facing these things, Lord, that you are with us and that there is reward for your people who do. Father, motivated by your glory, motivated by the love that you have for us that can never be taken away, Father, motivated by the reward that there is for us in Christ Jesus, knowing that he will continue to supply our every need, knowing that, that we, as we step into greater uh, uh, invitations of obedience, we will also step into greater experiences of your love, Lord, knowing that our obedience doesn't mean you love us more, but oftentimes it means that we, we get it more, we experience it more, we, we, we understand it more. Lord, let us be motivated by these rewards that there are for us. Let us understand that no matter what dragon it seems to be threatening our lives, Father, that, that you have defeated it, that you have defeated sin in the ultimate sense. And so there is nothing that can face us in our life today that can overwhelm us. Lord, and how so often you have, a, you have something of value, you have a reward waiting on the other side. So, Father, strengthen our hands. Let us be... Uh, people like Peter wrote about in 2 Peter chapter 1. Would you increase our faith 
with goodness and with knowledge, with brotherly love and affection, with goodness and with courage like he writes about. So that we might then start to make a difference. Perhaps it'll just start in our own lives and then in our families, in our church, but then we might then make a difference in our community, in our city, and see what you do uh, in the spreading of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the greater David, Jesus Christ. Amen.